Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And we've had so many discussions on this program about trauma, about the ACE score, how you look at trauma in your life, some of the great therapies for people with trauma. But I came into discussion with one of my favorite people, Paul Anderson. He was my agent, a current real estate businessman, also a lawyer, a deal maker, a producer, the many hats that you wear, Paul. I am so amazed at both the menagerie of things that you accomplish and also how you juggle it all. So first of all, when you're introducing yourself to people, what do you say you do? Oh gosh, what do I say? I say that I suffer from endless curiosity and I love to build things. And and often I build things without giving up something I've already built. I just keep adding my doctor uh, I went in for a physical last year and he said, uh, he said, Paul, he's like, you do a lot of things. He's like, how do you manage your stress? And my response was, I just add another stressful thing. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever um, diagnosed officially with anything anywhere on the spectrum? Any, any kind <laughs> of concerns about past trauma? I really want to know because so many of our most intelligent, accomplished guests have been diagnosed with something. Uh, no, I haven't been diagnosed with anything. Um, I, I don't think I'm on, on the spectrum. I guess we're all on the spectrum of some, I guess we're probably yeah. all on a spectrum of some kind, Yeah. but no, I haven't really been diagnosed with, with anything. The, one of the reasons that I ask is people who tend to have such high productivity as, as you do, when they get into therapy and then they start clawing back the reasons that they do everything, a lot of, of what comes up is past trauma. And I've heard you speak before about your life. Would you give just our audience a little snippet of what a day in life was for Paul Anderson? Back in the day? Well, wow. Um, I come from a family of six boys. My parents were, I think, kind of ill-equipped to... It was back in the day, I think my parents, my oldest brother was uh, born when my parents were 21 uh, and barely 21. They, it was, you know, back in the fifties, it was a different time. Uh, and they were just kind of growing up and figuring out themselves. But my father became an alcoholic and he has been sober for more than 50 years now. He's 86. Mm. But I would say that what happened from the time I was a child, a very small baby to the time he got sober when I was in whatever first grade, it was, well, let me put it this way. My, uh, my brother, Scott, recently, who's a physician, said to me, he says, when people ask him about his childhood and kind of how to compare it to a television show, he, he jokingly says, we're much, we were much more like the Sopranos than the Waltons. And there was a lot of violence, a lot of you know chaos in the house with my parents against each other, mm -hmm. uh, you know, guns and trauma. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was nuts. Um, mm -hmm. And they're both, my parents are both super smart. My mother's been gone for 34 years. Uh, so super, super intelligent people who were extremely stubborn and wouldn't back down. And then, of course, you add that my dad was an alcoholic and not a nice one. Uh, you just you get subjected to all sorts of things that you don't want to see, including mm. being awakened at two o'clock in the morning by fights that were going on with the parents. I mean, I could go on and on and on about things that are indelibly marked in my brain. Yeah. Uh, happened. Uh, and I was young when my dad got sober but what happened between me as 
small child, a uh, baby. And what happened, you know, until the time he did, he got sober was, and the trauma of the parents divorcing and all of that, it was, it was crazy. So I mean, it's kind of shocking that they didn't kill each other. It's also even more shocking to me that all five of your brothers and yourself have um, led such successful lives. There hasn't been a single one of you that followed in the footsteps and was either imprisoned or became an alcoholic. What happened to the sibling group that you think united you in your trauma? I think that the parents kind of abandoned ship early on and not that they physically disappeared, uh, although maybe that would have been better. But I think that we all kind of filled in. There's a, a good age range. So I think my older brothers really kind of started protecting the younger brothers and we all became extremely resilient within the safety net of the six brothers. Mm -hmm. uh, and people ask about competitiveness among the six of us. And really, especially since people are pretty motivated and successful, and I've got two Olympic class athlete brothers, we really weren't competitive with each other. We really looked out for each other because we understood a common vocabulary that you couldn't really explain to anyone else about what happened in that house. And so as a re and and of course there was shame around it, right? You you know you're yeah. really running around talking about what horrible nightmares were going on within a house. For me, I used to actually just leave grade school by my like kindergarten, first and second grade. I would just walk out the front door wow. uh, and leave and go on long walks by myself. The principal would show up at my house uh, and go, "Hey, you know, Paul left." But interestingly, in those days. It wasn't like, why is this kid doing that? And what's going on in this house that we could be helpful with or report to the authorities? But it didn't happen that way. They would just come and retrieve me and put me back in class. So it was That's such an interesting point, Paul, time. because I, I think I've heard so many people say that they actually didn't start getting better either from their addiction or their self-destructive behavior until someone said, you know, it's not what's wrong with you, but it's what happened to you. I really want to know what happened to you. So imagine you as a first grader, somebody who was skilled would say, what is happening to you? What is happening at your home? What is happening to you in mm -hmm. terms of your sleep? What is happening to you in terms of your safety? Can you imagine how differently your life would have been? Yeah, I yeah, I don't, I had a, uh, uh, to take it even one sort of clinical step further, I actually had a stutter, maybe around first grade. I can't remember exactly. Kindergarten, first grade, I actually developed a stutter. So what did they do? They put me in speech therapy, but- we know now, and hopefully even knew then, children who develop stutters uh, latently, so not out of the gate uh, with a stutter, are, are often dealing with trauma. Yeah. Uh, and the stutter is a defensive response or an, a, almost an immune response to that as a call for help. And But I just got put in speech therapy until I overcame my stutter. And sometimes I still stutter when I'm really, really tired. But I definitely overcame the stutter. But now you think, wait a second here. What, what, all these red flags. Yeah. And it's not like my neighborhood didn't know there was a lot of chaos going on in my house because I had neighbors who were, this is an example, across the alley from us in St. Paul, Minnesota. I think I was in maybe second grade. Uh, she realized that I did not know how to tie my shoes. And she was a school teacher, different school than the one I attended. And she said, hey, you're going to come to my house every day until you know how to tie your shoes. And so I would saunter down the alley and across the way. And I went to her and she taught me how to tie my shoes. So people definitely paid attention. And I think there was just a subtlety to how people injected themselves 
into people's lives in those days. And it really was kind of the, is the village, you know, it takes a village concept, but here she noticed like, Hey, Paul, you don't know how to tie your shoes. She didn't say, Hey, your parents are horrible. She didn't make horrible right. comments yeah. about them. She didn't say, well, this is, they're falling down on the job. Uh, she just said, Hey, we're, we're, we're going to do this and you're going to learn how to tie your shoes. I think I learned how to tie my shoes in, in second grade, but I don't think she was asking, Hey, well, why is it that a really smart young man like yourself, no one bothered to teach you? Well, mm -hmm. no one taught me because we were basically little renegades and they weren't paying attention. And my parents were just out to lunch. So Paul, one of the super interesting things about thinking about your story is one could imagine all of your neurons and all the neural activity was laid down during a time of extreme chaos, which means that you could be super hyperactive. You could have explosive temper. I mean, what happens to kids who are raised in chaotic households from the time they're baby is really serious. And when I listen to you talk about your ACE score, which is you witnessed violence, you uh, were in a home that was divorced, there was alcoholism, you're like, tick, 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 your ACE score is probably off the charts. <laughs> but here you are today, one of the most successful friends and business people that I know. So what do you think went right? Well, first, I think that my being in the cocoon of safety with my brothers who are all hypervigilant and smart. Uh, I'm second to the youngest. The fact that I benefited from being in that tribe, number one. Uh, number two, I think that I benefited from people paying attention to me, teachers, counselors who saw in me something that I was ambitious about in myself, but didn't really know how to achieve. I think that a lot of it, there was a drive, I guess, with the with my siblings and me that allowed us to work and do things to take control. My first real sort of job job was emptying ashtrays at a bowling alley when I was six. And then my next job, I think was I started my own business going door to door in St. Paul, lining up lawn jobs and snow shoveling jobs. And then I would have my brothers do the work. I was an agent even in those days. Uh, I had a I had a landscaping company by the time I was in fourth grade and actually landed a government contract. No joke. I actually landed a government <laughs> contract, had my siblings uh, work uh, with me on that contract. I don't know how, I mean, who would hire a fourth grader, but that's what happened. That's what, actually what happened. I started my own company and I used to just have dreams about building businesses, any kind of business, like a, mm. a sandwich shop, uh, whatever. I asked for three things from my parents when I was a kid that I can recall for Christmas. I wanted uh, guns, you know, six shooters, like, you know, toy guns. I wanted a cash register and I wanted office supplies. And I asked for all three of those in the same Christmas. Uh, and I think it was six uh, when I did that. And, wow. and cause I liked, I liked having my own office in the house. I, I think that each of us really created a lot of structure and order in order to be in control mm -hmm. because there yeah. are so many things you're not in control of. It's fascinating to me as well when people who haven't been given sort of the inherent safety that creates self-esteem, love and safety, that they often move to outward activity to be, to have that degree of fulfillment. So every time that you did something entrepreneurial, you got a ton of feedback, not just oh, yeah. from money, but pe from people. I think from these society. things are amazing. So what we see, and, and a lot of the people that I work with who are in their mid fifties now are, are uber successful people with traumatic stories like yours, like mine, and they reach middle age and they're like, I've been doing my entire life and I want to understand what it is like to be. 
just to have this sense of self-equanimity and of reassurance that I'm okay without doing. And I'm wondering if you've hit that phase in your life as well. Well, equanimity is a great word because it encompasses so many things around peacefulness and contentness. I don't know. I think that, I mean, I think it's a kind of a journey. I don't think it's really a destination. I don't think you really quite, I mean, it's really easy to go back to the things that are comfortable, which is all I'm just going to do. Yeah. Uh, and, And doing is a great escape from being, and it's much easier to escape to doing than it is to rest in the stickiness of being. I will say though, that I am working harder to try to be rather than doing. And I think some of that comes from a measure of, I've been on my own since I was 14. Mm. So I truly was on my own. Uh, And so I had a lot of economic stress and motivation to try to just put clothes on my back uh, uh, and be able to eat. I just worked, 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 worked. I mean, people like, I never had any alcohol in high school or college. Because I was like, who's got time for that? And I wasn't a partier because I was working 12 hours a day doing retail in my teens. And then and then I ended up working for a hospital. And by the time I was 19, I was the number two person in the department with 23 employees. Because there's one thing I could do is work. And all of my brothers and myself are just really good workers. Yeah. Uh, just put your head down and, and work and get shit done. And I think a lot of that is the control. And so it's harder to find moments of reflection and to be you people. Some people think, oh, it's really hard to like work as hard as you work out. It's not, that's not hard for me. That's easy. Um, It's really hard to be because you have to slow down. You have to deliberately find calm. Mm -hmm. And the minute there's a crisis or distraction that hyper activates our skills as trauma survivors who have adapted and done really well with the things that society loves, which is success and whatever, it's really easy to just default right back to, oh, I'm just going to, let me go solve that problem. I mean, it's like, it's almost like an addiction, but it's one that comes with a lot of societal affirmation. Right. Because if you are doing things and doing deals and you're successful in business, and I own, as you know, I, I, operate companies across the spectrum of industries. And I'm mostly focused on my life and media and and entertainment, but I'm involved in other kinds of industries that have nothing to do with media. And I love it because it also allows me to be creative in in areas where I'm not as creative. I'm creative as a deal maker in media and I'm creative as a producer, but I'm the hard-nosed business guy. And there are some areas like in real estate development and design that I love putting my chops so I'm learning, I'm learning how to relax a mm. little bit more. And I'm learning mm. that I've actually earned the right to be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I wish I would have figured it out earlier, but I think you're right. I think you learn these things when you're like, okay, I don't have to worry about my next meal. I don't need another accolade. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, my kids are, my older kids are 21. At some point, I'll probably have a grandkid. And I'm thinking, well, even though I think I'm a good parent, I'm kind of excited someday to be a grandparent. And how do I, how am I visualizing the more calm Paul? If that's going to happen, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, just, I'm yeah. visualizing something that's not achievable because I do like to build shit. I mean, it's yeah. fun. <laughs> you know what um, that's Oh, yeah. One of the most interesting things that I've heard from trauma doctors is the number of young people who are really serious about investigating their trauma, finding out more about their trauma, sitting in the trauma. I'm far more interested in, okay, we know what happened to you. Now what's next for you? Like, how do you 
hold the history of trauma and move toward your goals. You did it without even thinking. It was just like a a reflex almost to go ahead and build and to and to create. But I'm wondering if you talk to a young person who you knew had the kind of history you did, what you would tell them. I would say that a lot of times people who are examining their trauma dwell. They ruminate about what life they could have had, but for the trauma. And I would say that that is a fool's errand because there's no way you can go back and re-engineer your life to something that it wasn't. And one of the things that I decided when I was uh, 14, I kind of came up with a phrase for myself, which is all all I have is where I'm going uh, because I was literally on my own. I was on my own in terms of self-propelling, but fortunately I was not alone in that some people were paying attention to me. Uh, including school counselors and teachers who just really put their arm around me and saw something in me that that I maybe didn't even see in myself. I would say to those people, it's good to frame it and own it and and recognize it, but you cannot go back and unring the bell. There mm-hmm. is no genie. And by the way, what the hell would that genie even look like if you put it back in a bottle? I I joke with my kids. I mean, they don't know all about all the things that happened to me when I was a kid. But they do know that there's been some uh, trauma. And I'm like, look, if 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 I could replicate the chemical explosion that was my childhood and, and apply some of that life lessening to you, I would. But I would not wish that on anyone. So I'm not going right. to do that. And I'm not going to traumatize you in hopes that it propels you to a, a much better, more self-aware and resilient life. I'm like, that's batshit crazy. Yeah. Uh, so right. my kids have not been traumatized uh, and... Maybe someday they'll be in therapy on my money and say otherwise, but I think they would say that they've led a pretty privileged and uh, charmed life. And they're very smart kids and they're very self-motivated and they're very hardworking and they're very self-aware and they're really great. But I would say to those kids who are going back, like you can't go back and re-engineer something that has passed you by. So what you can do though, is you can go, wow, I shouldn't be pining and hoping for an alternative life that didn't exist because it's not possible to do that. Yeah. But what I am going to do is be incredibly vigilant and hyper aware of how those things impacted me and my ability to pursue interpersonal relationships with people, keeping these things in mind so that I don't replicate the same kinds of mistakes that happen to them by others. That's just really wise. The way you framed it, it's so beautiful. I've actually never heard anybody say it quite so succinctly. I do feel like there are some gifts that I have from my traumatic background that I wouldn't have unless I had been in rooms where I needed to read a person in that instant, where I needed to know I needed to take flight in that instant, where I understood who the people were in the room and what they were going to do next. I think that's a gift from my Mm -hmm. traumatic background. And I'm wondering if you see it the same. Absolutely. I think that for me, a, a defense mechanism when I was a kid was to go inward. I would go for walks by myself for miles. Uh, one of the best things that I heard, I heard when I was a little kid is I got lost at the circus and separated from my family. I think I was like five. Uh, some kids would be in the corner crying. After spending maybe 15 minutes trying to find my family, I just bolted for the exit. I didn't exactly know how to get home, but I knew that I knew the freeway was kind of got me to some street that I could figure out. And in St. Paul, the uh, highway, uh, the Interstate 94 is kind of sunken. And so there's roads above with houses on each side. So I actually walked the side of the freeway, not in the freeway, but up above in a 
residential neighborhood. So I, till I got to a familiar intersection and then, and nobody stopped me. I was five years old and this is the early seventies. I was five years old and I managed to get my way home and it was miles away and I loved it. It was exhilarating. I loved the independence of it. And I think that you really can't go back. Uh, and then you realize that everything that happens to you is a building block, or you can be a victim and have that be a crutch uh, or worse, an excuse. I didn't have time for excuses or crutches because I needed to eat by the time I was 14 and on my own. And that was a luxury. I wasn't, and I wasn't leaning on anybody. I mean, other than uh, uh, mentors. So I don't know if I answered your question, but you absolutely did. I want to just end by asking you about the discovery process you're going through right now with your SIBS, because I think that one of the ways that people truly become whole after experiencing this is to process as adults retell the stories, check it in your mind against your brother's memory of that date. How has that process been for you and how has it impacted your living father? Well, my brothers and, and I are in continuous dialogue with each other about things that happened when we were young. We, we own it. We laugh about a lot of it, but I would say that I think we've all moved on, but we all understand, especially now as we're older, I think we understand the scars and recognizing how what did happen to us shaped our lives and our relationships. And with respect to my my father, he's 86. Uh, I did an interview recently about sort of how early trauma has impacted my life as a negotiator. And I had some reference to some crazy shit that happened to me when I was a kid and went to my brothers. And my dad actually listened to the interview. And he sent a text message to all of my brothers and me at 86, kind of throwing himself on the sword, um, recognizing uh, what he's certainly said out loud for years, which is his children are very successful in spite of him, mm -hmm. uh, and that he has really tried to own his mistakes and make amends for them over the years. But the problem is, you know this, Sheila, is that your earliest absolute trust relationship is with your parent. And if that trust relationship is violated and you're parentified and, you know, which, which then becomes, which parentification is another form of abandonment. When that happens to you, you rewire your whole brain around what trust actually means. And so I think that he realizes that the kind of unbreakable trust relationship that he could have had with his six boys could never be the same as it would have been, but for all of those things that happen. And I think that he recognizes and mourns the loss of what could have been oh. for himself as a parent. But for my brothers and me, I think we are all grateful uh, that we have each other. And I think also super grateful and recognizing our achievement by not repeating. None of us has ever been in a, I mean, fortunately, no one in the family has ever been to prison, but uh, uh, but none of us has ever had a drug addiction problem, no right. substance abuse issues. And I don't think that's typical. No, uh, not uh, from six six males. You'd, think, you'd think that at least one of us yeah. would have gone you know, <laughs> uh, off the rails, but that that hasn't happened. And we have really good solid interpersonal relationships with each other and uh with with and we all have lots of great friends and we're all very stable and i think that stability is also a desire for calm and control like mm -hmm. when you grow up in chaos having some predictability in your life yeah. uh, living in the same house for decades having great friendships and i'm really fortunate i have such great 
friendships with women and men who are people I can, I truly love and I can lean on and who know me and are, are sweet with me and know when I'm, I'm, I need some propping up. And I think that's, I feel really lucky because I know a lot of people don't have that. Uh, and of course my brothers and I have each other. Can uh, I just ask one add on question, Paul? And that sure. is if you had been this sort of deeply intuitive and introspective around how trauma impacted you, would your business life, how you dealt with other people, would it have looked any differently? Would you have treated associates or or deal making any differently? Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Some of the earliest awareness I had of kind of my hyper ambitious being was in fourth grade when my I was actually living in Montana at the time. And my dad, who I was living with at the time, uh, was asked to come in for a parent-teacher conference. So my dad, of course, said to me first, like, what have you done? Like, why am I being called to this meeting? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea because it wasn't a normal parent-teacher conference schedule. And the teacher sat my dad down and she said to him, like, we're not quite sure what to do with your son. And I think his initial reaction was defensive, like, okay, what, like, what's going on? Like, what, what the hell has Paul done now? But what she said to him was, your son is really industrious and ambitious and energetic, and he's not like so many of the other kids in the class, and you need to find an outlet for that. And so my dad actually came home and told me that that was what happened in the the meeting with the teacher and was almost like chuckling uh, about it um, because all my brothers were kind of industrious and, yeah. and working hard. I think that that awareness of like, oh, well, it is okay to be hyper ambitious in, in all of that. And so that awareness definitely translated through to how I've been uh, in business, in uh, negotiating deals. I think I'm very empathetic uh, mm-hmm. when I do deals because I do care about delivering as many things to the other side as I can without undermining my own foundational needs. I don't think it's about conquering. I think mm-hmm. it's about win-win when mm-hmm. you can have a win-win. Yeah. And as you know, from our long relationship that when you manage those things, hopefully optimally for everyone, you're keeping other people in mind that you can keep going back and doing deals with the same people over and yeah. over again. And they trust you not because you've manipulated them into a trust position, but they trust you because you actually aren't full of shit and will do. So all of that stuff impacted. I mean, there's just, there's no way to separate from it. And you know, from your own trauma that you can't be be hyper aware and vigilant as a result of early trauma and then turn it off. Right. You're just, that's just the way you are. No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's just, that's just the way you are. And it is a gift. I think the people who recognize those gifts Mm -hmm. and understand that they don't need to mourn the loss of a childhood they didn't have because there's really no way to go back and configure that childhood in any way that rationally makes sense because any number of things could have happened or derailed it or whatever. And having the triumph of being aware enough to survive uh, and to then thrive is a pretty big accomplishment that doesn't make things less hurtful uh, when they happened, uh, but they do help you sort things out as you're organizing your life as a person who controls your destiny versus when you're a small child, you don't have a lot of control. So yeah. I think all those things kind of impact. And, you know, I don't know, it's just like this chemical explosion, like I say, that, you know, that you can't really replicate, like in your own early childhood experiences, you just, you don't wish that 
on your daughter. Uh, and you can't really explain <laughs> how all of that kind of worked out for you other than your resilience as a positive human being and realizing that, oh, it's much better to have aspirational conversations with people. And some of it, here, here's what I think some of it is issue. I think some of it's just pure gratitude. I'd rather be positive because I am grateful that I have a life that nobody in my neighborhood would have predicted yeah. uh, that my brothers and I would have. And it's not a conquering, it's a survival and resilience. And it's through a lot of positivity. Dwelling on what could have been is a fool's errand, like I said earlier. I love what um, Paul has just described, and it's something that uh, we'll be talking about more on this program called post-traumatic bounce. This hyper-awareness of the gifts that have come because of the unique circumstances you grew up with, uh, a deepening spiritually of what it is that you want to do with the rest of the time that you have in the world, this sense of being and having a force within yourself that can actually transform and be creative and help other people through what you learned. I think you've been one of the most compelling examples of post-traumatic bounce of anybody we've ever spoken with, Paul. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you, Sheila. I really appreciate being a guest on your show. <laughs> <laughs>